1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Boss the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara, as usual, talking about the news that you probably don't know from the past week. Jeanette Elsie also is here to give us an update on what's happening with the protests. And then I sit down with the incredible author, Maurice Chama, to talk about his new book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Debt Penalty in the United States. I learned a ton. You'll learn a ton. Timely book. Let's do it. My advice for this week is Let yourself feel. You know, it's one of the things I've been working on in therapy, definitely something I've seen friends struggle with is that like something happens normally when something's like not great, we do everything to avoid the feeling. We fill up our schedule, we self-medicate, we do all this stuff so that the feeling won't come and avoiding all that feeling just piles up and piles up and piles up until one day is too much. So let yourself feel Get the support you need, but, like, running away from the feeling never works. Let's go.
2: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Pod Save the People. woo I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Diara Ballinger.
3: And I'm Sam Yangwe on Twitter, at Sam Sway.
2: I'm
4: Kaya Henderson on Twitter, at
1: Henderson Kaya. And this is Dere
3: at D-R-E-Y on Twitter.
2: So, we're still rolling through. I'm. Mean, it's... Jan, we are knocking on Black History Month's door, y'all. By the time you'll be hearing this, it will be Black History Month. But for some reason, I'm going to talk to you about Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> There'll be plenty more on Black History Month from us. But we wanted to just talk about some of the leftover Trumpness in D.C., just in a sense of how wild this woman has been acting towards You know, people like the amazing Cori Bush that's in Congress, folks like the Parkland survivors that have been to Congress and their parents. Um, This woman's been attacking folks, but in a way that is nonsensical. Yes, it's scary but some of it's downright hilarious if you ask me. So we just wanted to talk about her um, just a bit because I think it does still give us a sense of what do some of these conversations look like if people are still troubled with fact and reality. This woman also is, you know, has tons of support in her district. So it seems even her behavior is fueled by the fact that she has so many folks um, in her town supporting her. So interesting, troubling, What do y'all think?
4: She's a whole situation. But I think for me, the more dangerous thing is that there are not many Republicans who are standing up to say that this is unacceptable. Um, I was just reading that Republican Senator Rob Portman from Ohio uh, was on CNN and called for Republican Party leaders to stand up against the things that she's saying and and says that there should be a strong response but you're just not seeing a center of gravity around of people saying, this is not okay, this is unacceptable. To watch this lady walk behind a young person and harass and harangue and berate them on camera, in fact, I mean, to do it, period, but and on camera is just galling. And no, I mean, who's standing up and saying, this is not okay, lady, this is not how we roll, Nobody. And so, um, well, Senator Portman is, and I'm sure there are others, but this needs to be wholesale condemnation. This is not okay. This is not leadership. This is not democracy. You know, at some point we need to draw the line on this foolishness.
3: So this is sort of a continuation of this broader conversation around accountability and what what should accountability look like for the Republicans who have misled and lied to millions of people who incited an insurrection against the United States government who now are continuing in some cases, like with Marjorie Taylor Greene, to double down on the lies, on the conspiracy theories, uh, re-traumatizing some of the same folks that their behavior literally caused to traumatize in the first place to just continue on with this down this path with no leadership within the Republican Party standing up uh, and doing anything about it and you know in the current system very little that democrats alone can do to remove uh, republican members from congress or to impeach folks and and remove them and so you know it, it is this sort of asymmetry where Clearly, these folks don't belong in Congress. Clearly, they have participated in crimes and things that if any one of us did it, like we'd be under the jail. But they're still in Congress. And without the Republicans standing up, it's you sort of feel like, you know, what can really be done outside of waiting until the next election? And when you look at the polls, it's not looking like her supporters are any less problematic than she is they supported her then like the republican party there it's well known that there are now you know millions of people across the country who buy into this worldview, who buy into the conspiracy theories who believe the election was stolen i think this is a broader question of you know what is the responsibility of a member of congress even if you have constituents that truly believe in some of these wild conspiracy theories who are truly racist at heart We need to have some level of responsibility where those views are not given a platform in the United States government, are not translated into policy, do not become weaponized where they can obstruct and delay the governing agenda of the Biden-Harris administration. This is a a huge conversation, but we need some level of accountability and none of that has happened to date. No members of Congress have been expelled from the chamber. Donald Trump has not been convicted yet. Um, He hasn't been indicted yet. For all of those who participated in the insurrection, um, and like a crime, crimes against civilians, crimes against capital police officers, cri- like egregious crimes that ha- they have yet to be held accountable for. So again, I mean. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is sort of the tip of the iceberg here um, on this broader issue of accountability, and we still have not seen it. I mean, there have been a few isolated cases of individuals who've been arrested following the Capitol riot and insurrection. But uh, overall, the people who led that insurrection, the people who uh, mobilized and organized and funded and incited that insurrection have faced no accountability at all. And, um, That has to happen now before this continues down uh, the ugly road that it's going down. You know, under the Constitution, the House of Representatives, they have the power to expel any
1: member with a two-thirds vote. It's probably not likely, given that the GOP uh, controls a lot of seats. The Democrats do not have a two-thirds majority. But it is important to note that 50 members of the House have signed onto a resolution to be introduced by Democratic Rep. Jimmy Gomez calling for her expulsion from Congress. I think it's important. You know, this just cannot be acceptable in the most important legislative body in the United States. The other thing that is, and this is the ridiculous thing, Mike Lee and Chip Roy, Republican uh, Mike Lee from Utah, and then uh, Texas Representative Chip Roy, they are calling for AOC to be censured. Because AOC tweeted about the GameStop stuff, which was its own thing. And Ted Cruz wrote back, fully agree. Like, he agreed with her about the GameStop and about Robinhood stopping the trading. And then AOC, with the class and poise and just zinger of the best of them, goes, I'm happy to work with Republicans on this issue where there's common ground. But you almost had me murdered three weeks ago, so you can sit this one out. Happy to work with almost any other GOP that aren't trying to get me killed. In the meantime, if you want to help, you can resign. <laughs> oh, and they called for her immediate apology. They said that this was unacceptable, blah, blah, blah. They wrote a whole letter to Pelosi. You Come on, you got to miss me with this. This is ridiculous. They wrote a letter to Pelosi. They said, it has come to my attention that AOC sent out a tweet a few hours ago, blah, blah, blah. It is completely unacceptable behavior for a member of Congress to make this kind of skirlish charge against another member, at blah, blah, blah. I ask you to call on her to immediately apologize and retract her comments. If she does not apologize immediately, we will be forced to find alternative means to condemn the regrettable statement. It's like you already tried to get her killed. I don't know. What, what other, other means? means? <laughs> what other means? Oh my soul! What else? And,
4: and while while you're finding other means, can you find other means for Marjorie Taylor Greene to
1: let's just do it? But that's the thing, you know. It's a reminder that the work that needs to happen in before the next set of elections because we have the you know we'll have elections again in two years. It's like we gotta unrig the system so that when people vote, it matters. The gerrymandering, all that stuff. We gotta like get the organizing infrastructure better in way more places. Georgia was a great example of how it's possible. So that when we come up, we can knock these people out cuz once we get these these seats like we'll get it. My news is from CNN
4: Business, which highlights a new report released by the Institute for Policy Studies and Americans for Tax Families, which talks about how the pandemic is worsening America's inequality crisis. In fact, America's billionaires have grown $1.1 trillion richer during the pandemic, while more than 8 million Americans fell into poverty just during the final six months of 2020. Uh, America's billionaires, in fact, have become nearly 40% more richer since mid-March alone. Um, They have recovered their losses from the spring, and they are faring better than before, much better than before, in part because of the stock market that is on fire and we saw a little bit of that this week with GameStop. We have what is called a K-shaped economy where if you look at a graph of how the wealth of different sectors go, our rich people are getting richer. Our poor people are getting poorer, so wealth builds on wealth, and working families are falling further and further behind. The stock market is at record highs, the housing market is booming, and big tech is thriving. But other industries that host employees, working class employees like airlines, restaurants, hotels, and movie theaters are in disarray. And the stock market has played a significant role in the divide between the rich and the poor. So even though our economy hasn't recovered, the stock market has is up 72% from its low point in March. And the U.S. poverty rate had declined during the first few months of the pandemic, um, but then... The poverty rate began to climb during the second half of the year, and it's now nearly double the largest annual increase in poverty since the 1960s. As you know, it affects some people worse than others. And so, of course, the poverty rate for Black Americans is 5.4 percentage points higher today than in June 2020, which means 2.4 million Black people have fallen into poverty, For those with a high school education or less, the poverty rate has surged to 22.5% compared to 17% in June. And the places hardest hit in terms of increases in their poverty rates, Florida, Mississippi, Arizona, and North Carolina, suffered some of the largest increases in part because they have less effective unemployment insurance systems. And so what you have is the continued tale of The haves and the have-nots, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. The stock prices, the surge in the stock market helps the wealthy. The wealthiest 10% of United States households own 87% of all stocks and mutual funds, which is bananas. You know, stock shares are going up. Tesla's skyrocketing stocks um, have gone up by more than 600%, 600%. Which means Elon Musk has made hundreds of billions of dollars during this pandemic. Other big gainers include Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, whose wealth has climbed by more than 68 billion. Facebook co founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg is about 37 billion more wealthy. And it took about nine months for these people to not just, for these billionaires to not just recoup and recover. But to actually exceed where they were. And according to this report, it will take more than a decade for the world's poorest people to recoup their losses from the pandemic. So here we are.
3: It's just wild to see this all happening in real time. It's like the trends that we have seen and talked about and fought back against for a while now have just accelerated dramatically during the pandemic um, with the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. And legislators you know, trying, you know, it seems to say that they're doing something and, you know, putting out these piecemeal recovery packages that, you know, the first one was a big giveaway to the wealthy, uh, the second one, and, and now we're talking about I think the third or the fourth package is a little bit more balanced. But overall, it doesn't sort of structurally correct for even the level of inequity that was created over the past year, let alone the inequities that have been created over the past 400 years. So we're still sort of playing catch up to get to where we were, you know, a year ago so that we can then move the ball further up the field and just make progress towards addressing the fundamental challenges that have been around for quite some time. Um, And so that's really frustrating. It's also uh, a reminder that policymakers can and should step up to propose big structural solutions, big structural investments that some of which we've seen from the Biden-Harris administration, um, others which have been sort of individual bills that we've seen here and there from members of Congress. Um, But overall, I mean, you're seeing the billionaires make billions and billions, even trillions of dollars. And at minimum, all of that wealth, all of that additional profit that they've made on the backs of working people over the past year, all of that at minimum should be invested directly into the hands of low-income people and working people. Period, right? And so, even talking about like, should we raise the tax rate a few percentage points, or you know, should we uh, put out you know, twelve hundred dollar checks, these or two thousand dollar checks or four hundred dollar checks on these one time installments? Like, none of that is at the scale of the trillions and trillions of dollars um, that the wealthy have made just in the past year. And they didn't need any of that money in the first place. They were already wealthy, right? So they should have no problem then like giving back all of that extra money to the people, right? And so I think level setting in terms of sort of the expectations of like where we're at, how things are getting worse and that you know, just recovering from this pandemic alone um, is not gonna be enough because we still have to build a society that works and it sure wasn't working before the pandemic. So I didn't know that according to the Institute
1: for Policy Studies, and Sam, maybe you already knew this, the 400 richest families in America own more wealth than all black households and a quarter of Latino households combined. That is... Wild. Knuck and I mean, that's something, right? So what this made me think of, Kai, when I heard your news, it made me think of Warren's wealth tax. And what she's calling for is an annual two cent tax on every dollar over 50 million of a family's net worth. Under this, billionaires would pay a six percent tax above one billion. And it's like that seems reasonable. That just makes sense. Just, just yeah, just like you like reasonable. two a two cent tax. And like, I think this is where we have to just be better storytellers about talking about this stuff simply. You know, when she was challenged on CNBC, somebody was like, you know, people are going to are going to move out of the country. And she's like, there is no evidence people are going to leave the country because of a two cent wealth tax. This is going to impact such a small group that will be infinitely wealthy, even with the two cent tax. And I love it. Warren goes, how about a counter argument that's based on fact? And you're like that it is true that the wealthiest people are paying less taxes than everybody. Like, you know, she talks about that the bottom 99% of Americans pay roughly 7% of their total wealth in taxes in 2020. But the top one-tenth of 1% paid only 3.2%. I mean, it is, if we were able to talk about this stuff more simply, more people would be outraged because it, there is not a world where it makes sense, you know? So that's when I I read your thing. I'm like, you know, a billion dollars and a, that's a lot of money. A billion dollars. B billion. That's right? a lot of money.
4: Elon Musk alone made 135 extra billion dollars in this pandemic moment. 155 billion.
3: And, you know, you remember during the primary campaign how, you know, Warren's two-cent tax proposal was really set a standard in terms of, like, going far in terms of taxing the wealthy. And it's two cents. You know, like, Bernie put out a proposal that was a little bit further. And, and like, there was all this debate over, like, how many cents on the dollar should it be? And it's like, hold on. First of all, all the money that they made, all the additional money and profit they made during the pandemic while everyone else was suffering, like, all of that money should get out of their hands and into the hands of the people, like all of it, 100%, not two, like not 5%, not 10, like all of it, right? Like they didn't need more money in the beginning of 2020. So they they don't need this money now, right? So like baseline. And then like moving beyond that, it's like, you know, once you're past a billion dollars, do you really need a second billion, a third billion? a fifth billion, a hundredth billion. Like, you don't, right? So why are we even allowing this to happen? Like, everything past a billion, like, you shouldn't get any of that. It should just get reinvested 100%, not two cents. So like, that should be the expectation. I feel like people agree with that in general too. But once this gets translated into policy and compromise, it just gets watered down to the extent that it makes it feel like two cents is really going far when that should be the bare minimum. Mm -hmm.
2: So... My news is from CNN, we're on a CNN kick today. And it talks about a hard hit Latinx community in Washington Heights, hard hit by COVID, some of the highest COVID rates in the city, New York City. And so essentially the city set up this whole apparatus at this track and field place in Washington Heights. And the whole premise of the place was to get people in that neighborhood over 65 vaccinated. What has happened is white people from all over New York state and city have taken up all the vaccination appointments. So we saw this, yeah, you know, I don't remember if we talked about this on the pod. We definitely talked about it like as a group like on text or whatever how this happened. This was similar in DC. How in DC all the white folks came from Ward 2 and 3 to Ward 7 and 8 and took up all the all the slots. You know, De Blasio's outraged. How can this happen? Well, <laughs> What did you think was going to (laughs) happen when you have a distribution plan that's based off of like going through these websites and portals and you got to have a smartphone and like it's not accessible for folks. Um, And also just in terms of people actually knowing that it's there again, there's not enough, a good enough job done around just getting the word out about, you know, places where people can be vaccinated. As we know, like disparities around who's getting the vaccine is is a, a nationwide problem, going to be a global problem. And a CNN analysis of 14 states found vaccine coverage is twice as high among white people on average than it is among Black and Latino people. So it also found that an average of more than 4% of the white population has received the COVID vaccine, about 2.3 times higher than Black population. And 2.6 higher than the Latino population. This is gonna be the huge issue, right? And this is, I think initially everybody was like, oh, the problem is that, you know, Black and Latino people, because of the disparities and the racism in the healthcare system, they're not gonna wanna get the vaccine. That's true. But what is more true and what is gonna be more, more impactful is that the distribution of this vaccine is such that even if there was a behavioral change where black and brown folks came out in droves to wanna to get the vaccine, there would be no one for them to get it. Or if there were, it would be inaccessible essentially. And so we're seeing this not just in New York and we're seeing it everywhere. New York though, I think is keeping really good numbers. And I just like, was like, hey, let me go look and see what the portal looks like and how hard it amaze it's a maze. So I'm just thinking of people who are over 65, people who are over 80 who need to get this vaccine and are expected to go online to make an appointment and then to get to said appointment and then to go back for a second shot. So I don't know, I just wanted to bring this up because I think this is gonna be like this is gonna be the issue. It's gonna be the thing. And just also learning that like a year from now, if folks if we don't have high numbers of folks that are vaccinated, the majority of the deaths are gonna be in black and brown communities. Like communities will be decimated if this vaccine is not given out. The other thing that I've learned about vaccinations is that it's not as simple as your cousin just not wanting to get one because he's not like, I'm not feeling it, so I'm not doing it. If he doesn't get it, chances are, maybe slim chance, but there's a chance that the virus can mutate in him to such a way that the vaccine won't work and then it won't work for anybody else. You know, and I think there's been more and more like on cable news that I've been seeing just like around these different nuances around the mutations and the vaccines, et cetera. But there's been so little on this distribution plan and how we need to hold the states accountable, but also the Biden administration accountable for saying we're going to give it to the states which is the same thing Donald Trump did.
3: You know, it's uh, we're seeing something like this happen all across the country, as you said, Diara. I was just reading reports coming from LA uh, talking about something similar happening uh, in LA where predominantly Latino communities uh, were having, in the places where you could get a vaccine, um, they were starting to have a bunch of white people from outside of those neighborhoods getting in line at the end of the day to try to get access to a vaccine that wasn't intended for them, right? This is like coming into a another area just to get a vaccine that you technically don't qualify for because you're not over 75 or don't have a preexisting condition or what what have you. But nevertheless, like we're seeing folks jump to the front of the line to get a vaccine that they're at less risk for, while, as you said, Diara, black and brown folks are dying from this. At every level throughout this pandemic, it has been predictable almost to a T that where you could see inequities generate, they will generate. um, Because of the way in which our society is structured, because of white supremacy, because of uh, proximity to resources and information and access to people who can get you a vaccine, Um, we're seeing that these trends are happening in terms of who can get the vaccine. It's happening in terms of who's dying from COVID and who's getting infected, which neighborhoods are most impacted. Um, In that analysis of LA, uh, they did a neighborhood by neighborhood breakdown of the data in terms of COVID COVID case rates and death rates. Um, And it was like you could literally be in another country, right? So the U.S. overall... It has the highest number of COVID cases, worst place in the whole world for COVID right now. Um, but when you zoom in, even at the city level, just like you see huge disparities in life expectancy and educational outcomes and policing outcomes by zip code, you see those same disparities in COVID case rates. So in Malibu, in you know, wealthy Malibu, one in every 42 people has contracted COVID, has tested positive for COVID. Uh, but then if you go to East LA, a predominantly Latino area, um, in Boyle Heights, it's one in every five people, so you're talking about more than eight times higher rates of COVID just, you know, going from one area of sort of the LA area to the next, um, and so much of that is structured by race. So again, you know, this is devastating. It is sad. It is deadly, um, and it is also like American and predictable, um, like so many of the other outcomes that we've talked about. And you know, this has to be something where. You know, access shouldn't require you to go online and fill out this appointment that's really difficult to get and hope to show up at this place at this time. In L.A., by the way, the stadium that they – in Dodger Stadium, they're doing um, vaccinations, and the anti-vax people came and protested and shut down the vaccinations for a while. So, like – So I don't even know how you access the vaccines if the vaccination sites are getting shut down by the anti-vax people and the police weren't, you know, out here trying to protect people, trying to get vaccines. They were out there just watching the protests and saying, oh, how interesting. I guess we are gonna have to shut down the vaccination site. This should just be so much more accessible, right? Like you should be able to walk into a CVS and get a vaccine. You should be able to walk into any corner store and like get help. You should be able to, I mean, we just had an election where millions of doors were knocked in black and brown communities to spread the word about who's going to be on the ballot and when the election is and how you can vote. You're telling me we can't mobilize people to do the same thing, to get folks vaccinated at the same addresses in the same communities? So again, like the resources are there, the infrastructure is there, the people are there. I don't know if the vaccines are there, if the supply is there. There's a lot of issues with the supply of vaccine and the Trump administration that said that there were vaccines that apparently they didn't have. Um, So I think we have to fix that issue as well. But the distribution is a, a huge issue that we have to overcome. So on the topic of a bunch of money going to a bunch of white people that probably shouldn't be going to, let's talk about the police. (laughs) Because my news is about Seattle, where legislators uh, at the local level have not only cut the police budget uh, for this year, um, but are going a step further and deciding to open up the decision-making about where should that money go to city residents through the participatory budgeting process. Now, before we get into participatory budgeting, I wanna zoom out and talk a little bit about the landscape of police funding uh, over the past year or so. So, following calls to cut police budgets all across the country, widespread organizing around it, some of the numbers have come in around, you know, to what extent and in which places did budgets change. According to a Bloomberg analysis of the 50 largest cities, 26 of those 50 cities, the majority of cities, actually increased their police budgets for this year compared to last year. And there were only a handful of cities that made substantial cuts to their police budgets. Um, So despite sort of the national conversation, national focus, in sort of year one, we've seen a set of cities begin to make down payments on a strategy of cutting the police budget. But in most cities, we've not seen uh, as much of a shift. Uh, And those cities are places like Austin, uh, places like Minneapolis, uh, New York City, although New York City's budget cut, uh, some of that was smoke and mirrors, but some of it was real, um, and Seattle. Now, Seattle, lawmakers announced that they would cut the police budget by about 18%, which is not as much as uh, local organizers were pushing for. They're pushing for a 50% cut, uh, but an 18% cut ended up happening, made it into the 2021 budget. Um, But what is interesting about that cut is that now the city has to figure out where that money is going to go. Uh, and they're doing this through participatory budgeting, um, which is a process whereby they're working with local organizers throughout the city to survey both online and in-person residents all across the city and to ask them where that money should be invested and what types of programs, what types of strategies. Um, they're currently developing that sort of outreach strategy right now. Um, but this isn't the only place that has done participatory budgeting. Participatory budgeting was originally started in Brazil. Uh, a few decades ago, uh, and made it to the United States, has been used by a few big cities, including New York City, uh, to manage a few million dollars every single year. Um, And now in Seattle, what they are going to do is put $30 million into that participatory budgeting fund, 12 million of which comes directly from the police department. Another 18 million is cut from a variety of other places in the city budget. And it's going to be up to the people to decide where the money goes. So, um, you know, this is promising. we haven't yet seen how this strategy will be implemented or where the money will end up going. Um, but it is another way of thinking about you know how do we actually open up this process so all the money doesn't go to some random white guy who's who came up with a plan that doesn't make sense.
1: So we're gonna bring on an expert to the pod to talk about all the immigration stuff. i'll I'll briefly say that Biden uh, had an executive order about private prisons that came up in the past week, which is a good beginning. Uh, Remember that it only applies to the DOJ, so it doesn't apply to Homeland Security, which is where ICE is. Now, we think about private prisons in a big picture. Remember that less than 8% of people who are incarcerated are incarcerated in a private prison. But 75% of people who are incarcerated by ICE are actually in private facilities. So, like, the one place where, like, the end of private prisons really, really matters is actually ICE. The other thing that I have to remind myself and other people is that the end of private prisons doesn't mean that the people are free it means that they're in a public prison. So, like, you know, we still got work to do. There was this really good explainer in the appeal that says decades of federal policies turned local police on immigrant communities. Here's how Biden can stop it. And I realized that there's just a lot of the apparatus of ICE that I actually didn't know about, like the functionality. So I didn't know about the Reagan administration starting the criminal alien program and that the criminal alien program essentially is what that allowed for sharing between jails and the federal government so that they could like find people ostensibly who were engaged in wrongdoing in the country and were not full citizens yet. And then like, you know, they could deport them because that was clearly what they were trying to do. Then the 287G program, another program named uh, after the section of the Immigration and Nationality Act, it authorizes the federal government to deputize local police and corrections officers as immigration agents at the request of localities. And this was enacted under the Clinton administration in 1996, uh, but it started to be used more heavily in 2002-ish and afterwards. Then Secure Communities was a George W. Bush administration pilot that the Obama administration expanded, and that uh, allowed fingerprints taken during a local arrest to be shared with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, triggering a detainer if ICE suspects that the individual is subject to deportation. You can imagine that disproportionately impacting people of color. So the rollout of secure communities was strongly correlated with large Latinx communities and 93% of people arrested through the program are Latinx. So like, you know, got work to do. And the majority of those deported through this program were convicted of misdemeanors or traffic offenses or had no convictions at all. So like, it was just interesting to learn about how this apparatus was actually built in a way that I literally just didn't know. And the Biden administration has a real chance here to use executive action to just change some of this stuff. And what we learned through Obama is that if we wait for Congress to act on some of these things, we might be waiting forever. So I'm interested to see what Biden can do uh, with the stroke of a pen. And, you know, it was interesting to see people just trying to blind eye to Trump doing all types of executive actions. Side note, the fact that the Diet Coke button in the Trump Oval Office was real is really wild. I'll just say that. That there was a button when he pressed Diet Coke they delivered a Diet Coke. That, that was actually real, and like that is really well. But there's a lot of work that uh, the Biden administration can do immediately to undo some of the ICE actions, and we can also work through Congress. Uh, but what the article does a really good job of reminding us is that like executive authority can cancel the 287G agreements with the local police departments. They can get rid of secure communities and criminal alien programs. There's a lot of administrative stuff to take the burden off of immigrant communities right now. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor.
4: Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur this stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not...
1: And now I check in with Janetta Elsie. She gives us an update about what's happening across the country with regard to the protests.
5: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Netta. And thanks for tuning back in this week. It is officially Black History Month, and we love to see it. My mother's seven-year anniversary also was this last Sunday. And as I write this, I have to say it was great. I had a fantastic day, y'all. I can't even lie. Um, There was no huge emotional outpouring of sadness, just really only happiness. And like, I looked at pictures of her and I did not cry. I actually laughed a lot looking at so many of the old photos and remembering exactly what I was doing that would make her look at me like that. (laughs) So my mom was a Virgo. I am an Aries. If you are into astrology, you can already imagine how our little dynamic went. Okay, so I just felt so refreshed on her day, which is a first. I've never used that word to describe how I feel on any of her anniversaries. So this is a first and I appreciate it. Um, I learned a few years ago about working on her days. I'm sure my mother actually loves that she now has whole dedicated days outside of national holidays that I stop my whole world for to honor her on. Um, So big thank you to Dr. Sherry Williams and my dear friend Camila for the conversation, fellowship, the good Kiki and the good Peruvian food we shared while watching Housewives yesterday. And I appreciate every thoughtful phone call, text and virtual hug I was sent over the weekend because in doggy news, my family and I suffered a huge loss last week. My best friend, Champagne Cha-Cha Elsie passed away at age 14. And I still remember the day that we got her. My mom and my aunt walked into the house where she was and all of Cha-Cha's little Pekingese brothers and sisters could not be bothered. And Cha-Cha wiggled and wobbled her way and flopped down on my mom's foot. And that's how she knew she was for us. So she picked us and I'm so glad that she did. Um, and I remember seeing her and even at 18, even though I had never had champagne for real, her beautiful little golden coloring. I was like, oh, my God, we have to name her champagne. But it also was connected to I watched the Boondocks nonstop my freshman year of college. And there was this character named Cristal. So I was like, oh, my God. Yes. Name this dog, Cristal Champagne Cha Cha something. So we named her Champagne Cha Cha Elsie. Um, Pekingese dogs usually live to be around 15 years old. So I find extreme comfort in knowing we had this amazing little girl who then turned into this spicy, spunky woman. And then our elderly queen, you know, she came to be as she matured and hit 13, 14. She was definitely an elder um, and she demanded a different kind of respect around the house. So I'm so happy we got to see her through all these phases of life. And I really appreciate her. I love that our fluffy little girl has left here. And in my heart, I believe she's returned home with her mom, my mom. So rest in peace to those two earth sign queens. Cha-Cha was a Capricorn and my mother a Virgo. And now let's get into the news. So... On today's installment of Racist Police Saying Racist Things, a Georgia police chief and a police officer have resigned after body cam footage revealed that they used the N-word and other anti-Black slurs. The two officers also said that all slaves had to do was work (laughs) and that neither themselves nor their folks owned slaves. Their six-minute rant is now making its rounds on the Internet. In case you want to go check out this vile word garbage, I guess the body cam footage does come in handy. The two officers were asked to resign by Hamilton City Council. However, some local news stations are reporting that the officer was fired and that the police chief resigned. The distinction is important because it shows clearly where folks who can hold police accountable stand. Either way... Keep being bold enough to spew hate on camera, and we'll get you out the paint. Let's talk about Congress. The good sis, Representative Cory Bush, is clearly not here for any nonsense. After Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene allegedly berated Bush and her staff in a hallway while not wearing a mask, Cory promptly requested a different office on a different floor. Cory's a Democrat from my home state of Missouri. Marjorie is a Republican from Georgia. Marjorie posted her response on Twitter calling Corey a leader of the St. Louis Black Lives Matter terrorist mob, <laughs> claiming that she was the one who was berated. <laughs> First of all, see, this is why I do not let up on the media calling any and every black person who is concerned about the humanity of our people a Black Lives Matter protester. Can Black folks just not be Black and concerned citizens? Can I not just wake up and see something messed up in my community and go outside and decide to do something about it? That's what I did seven years ago in August 2014, and that's what so many other people did. We were not calling ourselves anything other than a resident of the city where we lived, where something messed up happened. Secondly, how many times in life can myself or other black women note that we have experienced violent acts of racism with a dash of noir that equals real life harm only to be turned into the villain for demanding fair and equal treatment or just by wanting to have and experience the same peace in our personal space that everyone else has? This is yet another example of the violence, harassment, and gaslighting Black women experience and are exposed to on a daily basis at the workplace, at the grocery store, at a city stoplight. Even in the halls of Congress, Black women cannot find peace. I will give y'all the honor of Googling Miss Marjorie's colorful background on your own. She's a mess. It's a lot of real cool things happening down in Austin, Texas. Like, I really, really have to say we should all keep our eyes on Austin right now. For all the folks who throw fits at the idea of cutting police budgets in order to redistribute dollars to, oh, I don't know, help people in a pandemic, the Austin City Council just approved purchasing a hotel to permanently house people experiencing chronic homelessness, The council unanimously voted to buy a local hotel for around $7 million, making it the third building that the city has bought. A vote on purchasing a fourth hotel is on hold because of four city council members who did not want to purchase two hotels at the same time. Roughly $100 million of the police department's $434 million budget is being redistributed to community services. This is defunding the police in action and it's improving the quality of life for constituents and citizens in that city. That's top notch. Like, I really cannot say it enough. This is truly like what is happening in Austin is transformative. It is it is improving people's lives. I do not have and don't see a problem with that. I love it. Love to see it. So I have a book recommendation for everyone, and it's a novel called Family by J. California Cooper. It's a beautifully written piece of historical fiction set during the Civil War that follows four generations of African-Americans. Chapter four presented a concept that I had not even prepared my mind to read i was not even prepared to say it out loud it was something so ridiculous that my i I just rejected it like the idea this is silly this is so foolish no way the specific and particular evils of chattel slavery in america really do shock and surprise me every time i learn of a new way new okay a new way that enslaved africans were dehumanized on this american soil A quote that really struck me from the book was about Always, who is the mixed race enslaved woman um, who's a character in this book. So the quote said, Always didn't know that she was pretty. It's something you may not know, but most slaves that ain't in the house or in a regular job never seen a mirror, never get to see what they look like. Ain't that something? Can live your whole life and never know what your own face looks like. Can look in water, but then your face be moving in waves and can't see it as good and clear. Quote. What a quote. What? I spent some time reading slave narratives, but I never even considered this fact. I cannot imagine going my whole life, never knowing or seeing or appreciating my features on my face. My nose shape. My full lips, the seriousness of my eyebrows, if I'm frowning too hard, I can't imagine not having access to my face. Always, the enslaved woman being talked about in this quote was slapped by her white mistresses for the simple fact that she was pretty. But here's the gag. Always was pretty and didn't even know it. She had never, ever even seen her face And while this is historical fiction, I believe that this is not even touching the surface of how embattled, toxic, and sinister interactions between white women slave owners and the black enslaved women who were forced to live with them could be. It is also amazing at how distinct and specific and cruel slave owners had the forethought to be. Imagine how never seeing yourself could affect your self-worth, your self-value, your self-esteem, I am really enjoying listening to this audiobook, and if there's any other gems that stand out to me, I will be sure to share them with you all here. And so, by the way, I'm just going to affirm quickly, Black women, in case you forgot, in case no one told you today, you are beautiful. And that's on period, poo. So I'll see y'all
0: next week. Bye, everybody.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod of the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
0: It's that time of the year.
6: If you want to bring coziness
0: into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness,
2: Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra soft robes, loungewear, and
0: accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15.
1: Maurice Chama is a writer for The Marshall Project and now the author of the new book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty in the United States. We sat down today to talk about capital punishment, its future under the Biden administration, and the power that voters have over criminal justice reform. Let's go. Thank you for having me. This book is fascinating. I have a gazillion questions. We have 30 minutes to get through them. So, you know, I just want to jump right in because I have so much I want to talk to you about. The first is why the death penalty? Like, how did you even get to this as like a, as a thing? Like why, you know, you did such a deep dive. It feels like you must have taken forever to write this book because it's so detailed. So many things i never even thought about. Didn't know. How'd you get here? About ten
7: years ago, um, I was a little bit out of college, and before I was even interested in journalism, I had this job. I just kind of happened to get it. I think actually a parent of somebody I had grown up with who was running this small nonprofit who that was doing basically oral history interviews around the death penalty. The idea is that you would kind of drive around the state and like spend three hours with you know the family member of a murder victim or the mother of someone on death row, and and then they were kind of building this archive that they saw as almost like a it's like a truth and um, reconciliation kind of archive uh, around, you know, someday in the future, there won't be a death penalty, and we'll sort of look back on, on this moment. And that was called the Texas After Violence Project. And it was while I was there that I got sort of fascinated with the subject and then realized that journalism was sort of the path that I wanted to take to like spend basically all day researching and trying to sort of tell people about what I was learning. And I got into criminal justice, but because I already had this interest in the death penalty, I you know kept pitching stories to editors about individual cases, and then eventually I would see trends and sort of zoom out a little bit. Uh, and then I would write about all sorts of other criminal justice subjects, you know, jails and prisons and policing, and kept coming back to the death penalty because, you know, it doesn't exist everywhere in the U.S., but it was so dominant in Texas where I grew up. And it felt like this kind of symbolic pinnacle of, the larger justice system, and the way that we had sort of collectively chosen that we wanted to have a justice system that was very punitive, right? That we had people in prison for 40 years, 60 years, and then the death penalty is the kind of extreme punishment that makes those long prison sentences seem, you know, somehow more thinkable. So that was uh, the kind of longer, you know, arc of how I got here. And then over the last five years, it was a matter of just going very deep, interviewing kind of dozens of people, picking individual cases that seemed kind of really important historically that maybe people had forgotten about because they happened in like the late nineties, um, sort of revisiting these little historical moments and then isolating sort of the, the real life people whose sort of career arcs and life experiences kind of illuminated the story really vividly and could be the sort of focal point characters to, to sort of draw readers in and, and and keep them going through what is, I realize, an incredibly depressing subject.
1: Have you been in an execution chamber? I'm assuming you must have, but I didn't want to assume. You write so much about other people's experiences. I didn't know if you've been in one. So I actually never did witness one, and there's
7: a long story to tell about it. You know, when I started writing the book, I thought in order to describe this sort of thing more, you know, vividly and responsibly, I should witness an execution. And I Made a lot of efforts actually to get the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to let me witness one as a, as a reporter. I tried to become a freelancer for some local newspapers because they had these rules around, you know, only local reporters getting in. Eventually, they just sort of kept coming up with reasons I couldn't go, and I gave up. But at the same time, a few defense lawyers were telling me, "No, don't do it. Like, you know, the whole point of your book, your research, is to sort of reduce the amount of trauma in the world, and there you go, throwing yourself into becoming traumatized by it." So now I have I'm in the same position, right you're right. I've interviewed like dozens of people about what it's like and tried to describe it very very closely uh but I've never seen one myself
1: yeah i was I actually was asking have you been in an execution chamber like have you actually ever been in the space class? Uh-huh. because I was in the I was in the Angola I mean that answer was great. I wanted to know that but uh, i I went to Angola and I was in their execution room, um, which mm-hmm. is pink because Barbara Walters did an interview in there, and they just never. Like, it, the white was too bright for the cameras, and I was like, wow, what a world we live in. But I, have you been to an execution chamber?
7: I have not, actually, no. Uh, I've seen that, so the, the electric chair that Texas used to use back in the um, 50s and 60s is in a museum in Huntsville, Texas. Uh, and so I've seen the, that electric chair, um, but no, I was never able to get access to actually see the execution chamber in Texas um, or anywhere else. Though, yeah, I think I would have gotten sort of a lot out of it just in terms of description. And so what I ended up doing is basically anyone I interviewed who had been able to take pictures inside, I asked them to show me the pictures. And eventually these um, corrections officers, people who work in Huntsville, showed me these sort of behind-the-scenes pictures. So the execution chamber, but also like the area behind the glass where the executioners do their work that we don't normally see. Uh, They would just occasionally let corrections officers take photos in these areas, restricted areas, and all you apparently had to do was, you know, be interviewing them in their homes and say, hey, can I see that? And then they show it to you. Um, So I did a lot of the describing kind of based on that kind of reporting.
1: Got it. So let's jump into Texas. So you organized the book in terms of rise and then fall, which are the two sort of big sections. Uh, why, Why did you do it this way?
7: When I first started learning about the death penalty, I just assumed it was something that we had always had, that it had just kind of always been an ambient sort of policy in the background in the U.S. And I didn't realize that in the 60s, it almost disappeared completely. And then in 1972, the Supreme Court finally ended it completely by ruling that it violated the Constitution. This was sort of a huge victory for a group of civil rights lawyers that had been just chipping away at it for years. And then there was a huge backlash, right? So states, including Texas, most of all, but lots of states, especially in the South, wrote new death penalty laws, and the Supreme Court ratified them in 1976. And then if you just look at a graph of executions or death sentences in America, it looks like a little mountain. You know, it kind of ticked up slowly through the 80s and 90s. Around the year 2000, it peaked uh, with almost 100 executions that year across the country. And then... Ever since then, it has been in decline uh, to today, where there are still executions. And of course, the Trump administration pushed through a sort of huge, unprecedented number of federal executions over the course of a few months. But the Trump executions aside, the big picture is that it's sort of falling back to where it was in the 1960s. And it just struck me that that was mysterious in a way. Why why had that happened? Why had we hit this peak and then suddenly decided to turn away from it collectively? And so then the research was a lot about just isolating and trying to understand the sort of interlocking different reasons that this happened. There's a lot of different reasons, and it gets very complex legally and politically, but it seems like America just reached a point at the end of the 90s and around the year 2000 where uh, we almost collectively realized we were overdoing it. You see a certain amount of like almost embarrassment creep in among Texas politicians. There's a lot of shame associated with the fact that uh George W. Bush was running for president and the Texas death penalty system just seemed kind of exotic and extreme to voters around the country. And then you start to see more bills in the legislature, more funding for defense lawyers, more Supreme Court cases that just start to erode the death penalty. So I, I divided the book in two because I just thought it was sort of the clearest way to think about the death penalty story over the last 40 years was about just, you know, about 20 years of rise and about 20 years of fall.
1: One of the things that you do so well is you highlight how some of the decisions that have wildly impacted people's lives, led to their death, led to unbelievably long sentences are the result of like very quick decisions or things that have saved people's lives have been like one intrepid journalist. Did you go into that? You know, I think about when you write about the Texas law, how it was like they wrote it in a matter of days, essentially, right? Like they Mm -hmm. huge decisions are like you know, what you say, right, is that it wasn't even, it was like, I think the analogy you give is like, you know, one house ate apples, the other house ate, you know, bananas, and then the compromise bill was apricots. It was like, it was night and day from what people had even proposed. Was that oh, what yeah. you thought going in? You know, I will say, having read the book, I don't know, at least people have thought about this. And the reason I ask it is because, you know, we're trying to undo this stuff. We have to produce a million studies and like, We have to go overboard to show that this stuff is bad. But when they made it, they, like, did it in the middle of the night with no nothing,
7: you know? There were a lot of moments while researching this that I found the story of how a sausage was made just very dispiriting, sort of depressing. So in 1973, as you say, you know, the Texas legislature had to come together and write a new death penalty law, or they didn't have to. They decided that, you know, public pressure was on them to do it. And uh, the state house came up with one version of it, a death penalty law. The state Senate came up with another one. And then basically a handful of legislators uh, locked themselves in a room over the course of like a three day weekend in May, 1973, uh, with the session, you know, a few days from closure, knowing they had to come up with some bill that would pass both houses. And they just hashed this out. They didn't record the sessions. Uh, one defense lawyer from the era who had some input earlier on told me that he basically threw his hands in the air and said, you know, you people are crazy. I don't want to deal with this anymore. So they mostly relied on prosecutors to give them advice. And everyone was just kind of grabbing at straws and guessing what kind of bill would a pass the Supreme court and be, uh, you know, meaningfully, uh, allow juries to decide who was the worst of the worst. And the question they came up with was, that the defendant who's facing the death penalty in order to go to death row, you know, the jury would have to find that he's going to be dangerous in the future, which means, you know, they've had to predict the future and precisely, you know, over the next 30, 40 years, you have psychologists coming in and making, you know, saying, can you really sort of based on somebody's prior criminal history, make, you know, actual predictions of predilection to future violence? No, you can't, but we need to do a study with the, you know, 200 people on death row for, you know, you have Supreme court cases where, Small armies of a really, really smart lawyer sort of pick over the the arcane wording of this bill and debate it. And and I had you know my entry point as a reporter was knowing about the law in the present, and so I sort of had this curiosity about you know how did future dangerousness, as it's called, uh, come to be such a big part of the text of law? And given how much scholarly and legal and just sort of professional uh, work had gone into sort of picking over these, these lines of text to say nothing about the effect on actual people's lives in terms of who goes to death row, who gets executed. I mean, the implications for people's lives are, are massive. Uh, so for all that to be based on what a handful of legislators spent a couple of days hashing out in 1973, most of them not specialists in criminal law, most of them just relying on prosecutors making guesses about what would work was really dispiriting. And I think, you know, I was really focused on this one little Texas decision in 1973. But later on, just out of curiosity, I would look into, you know, the stories of how the Klein bill or some of these other more famous punitive bills got passed through Congress. And it might have been a, a little more time and effort spent on it but you kind of get this feeling that everybody was just guessing about how to deal with crime and they just sort of threw whatever at the wall they thought would would stick and really long prison sentences were their answer and it's super dispiriting when you consider just how much work it is to undo these things given how little work went into performing them in the first place
1: it's also sort of wild you know you you cover a set of stories where it was the reporter who like for whatever reason Took it upon themselves to retrace the evidence, or to did it, did you go into this thinking that it would be like some people's lives would hinge on like a young reporter asking a million questions, and it's like, well, why didn't the system actually produce that in the first place?
7: Yeah, I mean, it, there was a catch twenty two whenever I would interview defense lawyers, where you know a lot of them actually defense lawyers, journalists, a lot of the people who would had played a really heroic role in individual cases and whose stories sort of as a reporter, as a writer, me coming in, sort of seemed like really exciting stories to tell. Oftentimes, I would actually be surprised that a defense lawyer, in particular, would be sort of uncomfortable with being in the spotlight because they wouldn't want a reader to think that you have to be a sort of, you know, young, hot shot, obsessive genius to unravel one of these cases. That the system itself should actually provide that level of care to make sure that the people who are getting punished are actually guilty of the crimes or that they really deserve it. I had a lot of conversations with defense lawyers actually about the movie and the book Just Mercy and Brian Stevenson and it was a very complex conversation because a lot of them had been inspired to go into defending people on death row because they had seen Brian Stevenson give a speech, you know, maybe in the in the early nineties. He was not as well known as he is now, but he was, you know, giving talks at law schools and inspiring young lawyers. And a lot of these defense lawyers said, you know, Brian Stevenson influenced me. He's brilliant. I also am worried that people will think that you have to be Brian Stevenson to defend people on death row right, that uh, in order to give justice to people accused of the worst crimes, in order to find out who's truly innocent on death row and get juries and judges to think sympathetically about the traumas in their lives, et cetera, that you have to sort of be a sort of once in a generation civil rights hero when we also want people to understand that it's just a matter of sort of doing the legwork, right, that there should be systems in place that allow for everyone on death row to get this level of care and defense. So that we feel like the system we have, you know, makes any sense at all. So through the research, you know, there's a lot of like interviewing people and, and but but some of the most sort of personally satisfying moments were these sort of more complex conversations that I would get into where I would get to see like the sort of influence and the kind of internal mental struggles that people would have as they go about doing what, from the outside can look like really sort of simple hero story work.
1: I love it. What do you think are some of the misconceptions about the death penalty that you sort of addressed? One thing that I I will say that I thought was interesting was the sort of tension. There was some stuff around the the clemency and parole boards that I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was some stuff around the life without parole and the tension between the death penalty folks and the life without parole, but... I'd love to know, you know, because there are a lot of listeners who only know the death penalty from what they see on the news, or they might know Trump's recent decisions around the death row as like their latest information. How can we help people think better about this who are not experts? Well, I think a key part
7: is just the very simple story that the death penalty has been disappearing for many years and is on its way out. And on the one hand, we might say, you know, there's plenty of people who still support the death penalty and think that this is a problem other people who celebrate this as a victory. But I think that in order to have it be meaningful, uh, we sort of have to think about what it means for the future of the kind of wider criminal justice system and not think about the death penalty sort of in isolation from the rest of mass incarceration. I think a really key point about the death penalty that people need to understand is that we often talk about individual cases, but we really think about the death penalty in the, as a big, abstract concept. You know, when Gallup or some of these other pollsters go ask people what they think of the death penalty, they ask about it in the abstract. They say, do you think the death penalty should be the punishment for murder? And people answer the question not thinking about any particular murder, or maybe they think about the worst murder they've ever heard of, or who knows, you know, what's in their minds when they answer that question. But the, the death penalty isn't an abstraction. It actually just plays out in, you know, hundreds of individual cases. And from the outside, the sort of first thing you tend to learn about these cases is how awful the crime is. The fact that somebody committed, you know, multiple killings with a serial killer, or in the case of, you know, Lisa Montgomery, one of the executions under Trump, uh, she uh, murdered a pregnant woman and, and made off a fetus. It. It's just these like stomach churning, horrible crimes that are very hard to listen to and think about. And our, and our gut reaction is, oh my God, that person deserves punishment or retribution. And then you you know, dig a little bit deeper into the case, you read what the defense lawyers filed in the case, and you find out, oh, there's actually this whole other story about the trauma that this person has undergone. You know, in Lisa Montgomery's case, she was sexually abused repeatedly as a child. She had severe mental illness. She had brain injuries. And so you have the very complex picture of somebody who committed an act of violence, having been the victim of violence themselves over and over and over again. And The more you look into who's on death row, the more that kind of story repeats itself over and over again. And so I think one lesson for me and a way I often talk about the death penalty or try to get people to think about the death penalty differently is to move away from this kind of big, heady, philosophical abstraction of like, do some people deserve to die for what they've done, which is easy to answer yes to, but doesn't really force you into the hard questions. And I think it's important to shift the conversation over to the kind of real life Pieces of the real life dilemmas about who these people actually are and the kinds of trauma that actually then produces the further violence that we're seeking to punish. This is also an area where I think some of the lessons from the world of the death penalty could kind of apply much more broadly as we seek to unwind mass incarceration. Um, you know, if somebody's in prison for 40 or 60 years, it's often because. Originally, what they did caused a jury or a judge to sort of rear back in horror and just say, this person needs to, to go away forever, but they aren't thinking about the kind of underlying social policy forces that shifts this person into someone who uh, committed a, a really terrible crime. The 10 years of, sort of research and, and interviewing and writing for this book have kind of like trained my brain into a new place where when I hear about a terrible murder, my first thought now still might be, wow, that's so awful. How could someone do that? But my second thought is, oh, like what produced that, right? Was it, you know, some history of mental illness? Like, was it some long, you know, line of traumatic experiences for that person? What in the world produced that rather than like what evil in the brain of this murderer produced that, right? So I, I, it's sort of the more you do this work and the more you think about it, the more you kind of train your brain to ask a different set of questions when you hear about something awful.
1: Do you really think it's going out? I know you write about it and, you know, in the in the fall section. Yeah. So you, you, what you said before was like, you know, it's, it's on its way out and I'm like, do you think it's on its way out? Like, is it, do you actually like, is it on its way out? Or is it just like, do you think it's going to go to a really low level? Or it'll be, or when you say on its way out, you really mean it'll be politically untenable, you know? I've wrestled with
7: this a lot. Like, will the penalty really disappear? And When people have asked me to predict what happens five or 10 years from now, I always like caveat it a lot because I think just so much about the world is surprising. I mean, when I first pitched this book uh, to publishers, they were asking me questions about President Hillary Clinton and what she would do about the death penalty, right? So the world changes really radically and we can't predict it. But I can envision a situation, and I think we're on the way to it, where the death penalty continues to exist, but it really only shows up for these rare and sort of extreme crimes like mass shootings, like the Bill and Ruth case or the Boston Marathon bombing, where the kind of public response is still so kind of viscerally angry that still will be a death penalty system, but it'll feel very rare and almost kind of irrelevant to people's lives in a way. Um, and I think that you'll also have a situation where, you know, maybe people are still sentenced to death, but there's virtually no executions. I think that's another way to think about it. Already in states like um, California and Pennsylvania, uh, there's death row. There's many people on death row who are sentenced to death, but the state has no political will and no sort of practical mechanism for actually carrying out executions. I mean, California dismantled their execution chamber. So in order to bring back executions, you'd have to get in, you know, a very pro-death penalty governor who not only supports the death penalty, but is committed to it in a really big way. And yes, Donald Trump was that president and did what he did. Uh, but... It is hard to imagine somebody through sort of wholesale causing a real revival of it at something. So I think what we're going to see is it just declining year by year in relevance. And at the point at which it actually disappeared, it might be a little while from now, but it won't go out with a bang. It'll sort of go out with a limper. It'll, it'll just sort of peter out to the point where we still have it on the books, but we never actually carry out executions. And it just seems kind of irrelevant to people's lives to the
1: larger political conversations do you think that the tide has sort of turned in Texas that like that, that idea that like, you know, you quote that one person, the comedian who's like, you know, if you kill in Texas, we kill back. Do you think that that is sort of done, you know?
7: No, uh, I don't. I mean, I think that Texas has a very strong sense of self that's tied to a sort of um, forceful retribution that's kind of tied to a mythology of the old West, you know, this idea that we hang horse thieves, right. And, I write in the book a lot about how I think that this is a smokescreen for the way that the death penalty is more connected to the history of you know Jim Crow and lynching from the South. Texas is the place where that smokescreen is, I think, kind of the strongest because we have this sort of Western heritage. I think the Western heritage in Texas continues to play a pretty big role in allowing people to respond to crime with a sense of a knee-jerk, you know, eye for an eye, you know, sense of justice. But I think that it's changing, and it's changing fairly quickly. And you, when you add in the kind of um, practical problems for the death penalty, the fact that it's very expensive, the fact that many small towns are giving up on it because they can't afford to execute people anymore. Um, and then in the big period, you have big demographic shifts. You know, Dallas and Houston and San Antonio are now all for, for some years been run by Democrats who are fairly anti-death penalty You know, you're seeing the tide start to turn, but I don't think it's totally turned in Texas. And, you know, I'm less familiar with other states, so I've I've reported on them some. And I think that there's still a very strong uh, pro-death penalty sentiment in a lot of southern states, uh, especially Florida, Alabama, Mississippi. I think it'll be a while before death penalty totally disappears in those states because they are also uh, states where it's kind of baked into the culture to some extent.
1: What do you want people to get out of the book?
7: I want people to take away how much power actually they have as voters and as um, kind of members of society to chart a sort of different path when it comes to criminal justice and the death penalty in particular. I mean, over and over, it was clear that these legislators were supporting the death penalty and writing these new laws, not because they themselves were so personally committed, but because they felt like, sure, they'd be voted out in the next election if they didn't. And so many of the prosecutors who sentenced people to death row, who worked on getting death sentences, constantly cited, you know, the people who were voting them in uh, and the fact that, you know, it was juries of 12 citizens who would ultimately have to issue those decisions that would send people to death row. So I constantly just saw that people have power and that they you know, can utilize that power to chart a new path, but I also wanted to be clear how much work it actually takes, not to have a different opinion, but to kind of train your brain away from kind of fear-based policymaking and public policy responses that come from a place of sort of anger and gut instinct about personal responsibility and rage as opposed to looking at the sort of deeper policy questions around race and class and gender and the sort of difficult work that it actually takes to respond differently when you hear, you know, a stomach-churning description of a really terrible crime. Uh, It's still very easy, I think, for people to respond with a sense of indignation and a sense of throw that person away, sentence that person to death, Uh, and it's a lot of work to kind of see under the hood what is, you know, causing violence in society, and so I think, I hope people take away this kind of twin set of lessons about A, how much power they have, and B, sort of the work ahead and how much, you know, we all have to kind of invest in learning to think differently about some of these public policy issues.
1: Got it. One of the last things I'll ask is, what surprised you in doing this research? Uh, That's a great
7: question. One thing that surprised me was how often people who profess to support the death penalty and even made their career partially in relation to getting people to be sentenced to death and executed were ambivalent about it. They maybe still supported it in the abstract. They still thought it was justice.
6: But when they had
7: to be the person to make the argument to the jury, this man needs to go to death row, or when they did the work of carrying out a natural execution, you know, I talked to a bunch of um, members of what's called the tie-down team in Texas who actually carry out these executions. I was surprised at how ambivalent everybody was and also how open they were about that ambivalence. With a you know journalist who, you know, I mean, I had to build trust with some of these sources. But at first, I could imagine in their minds they're thinking, um, you know, who's going to make me out to be bloodthirsty? And I didn't want to do that, but I had to kind of um, make the case to them that I wasn't going to do that. And then once I got sort of deeper into interviewing some prosecutors, executioners, members of juries who had voted for the death penalty, I was just surprised how often they were open about their regrets and second thoughts and ambivalence about sentencing people to death. And so it gave me this sense that, yes, many Americans support the death penalty, but then when they're kind of confronted with it up close, they wrestle much more honestly and intensely with it.
1: We consider from the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much for this book. It is really, uh, I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Ray. I really appreciate it. Well. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pods of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lanz, our executive producers, Jessica Cordova Kramer, and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Samson Yangwei, and our special contributor, Janetta Elzey.